My name is Anthony Mara, and my latest novel is Mercury Pictures Presents. Anthony Mara's new novel, Mercury Pictures Presents, has been an eight-year research and writing project that's both historical nonfiction and period comedy. Set in the 1940s, the book follows Maria Lagana, an associate producer of the fictional Mercury Pictures, and her professional and personal life as the United States enters World War II. I recently spoke with Anthony Mara about the issues the world faced in the 1940s, some of the same exact issues we're seeing today in 2022, his use of symbolism, and much more. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. So I've seen Mercury Pictures Presents described as a historical novel, as a sweeping drama, as a period comedy. How would you describe the book? I would describe it as a big transporting summer epic that has elements of historical drama and comedy sort of woven in. One of the wonderful things about writing a novel set in 1940s Hollywood is you can really draw on many of the film genres and tropes of the time. So I love the idea of writing a book that could combine both elements of film noir and screwball comedy. And so the book itself is, is kind of a love letter to the movies of that period, which have meant so much to me. And it's been seven years since your last novel was released, The Constellation of Vital Phenomena. It came out in 2013, and I understand that you started this book in 2014. So how did the idea come about, and, and what sort of research did you have to do? Yeah, it's it's funny. So my my first two books each took around a year and a half to two years to write. So when I began writing this in 2014, I figured I would be finished with it while Obama was still in office. But uh, one of the great things about, you know, writing a, a novel set in this period is you can sit on your couch watching movies all day and call it research. But it took a while for me really to get into it, in part because it is such a different period from my first two books, which were both set in the former Soviet Union. There's just a richness and sort of an endless rabbit hole of research you can fall down. It wasn't really until the pandemic, actually, that the book sort of took off for me. I was living at the time with my wife in a one-bedroom, this ancient one-bedroom apartment in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we had just moved just before the pandemic for her um, for work. And it was this strange apartment with an unsettling number of closets. There was about eight or nine closets in this, this one-bedroom apartment. The refrigerator had its own closet. And so my, my office, shall we say, was a closet and I'd managed to wedge uh, a desk and chair in there. You know, for a long time, I sort of dreaded getting to work every day. But as soon as the pandemic occurred and we were landlocked in this apartment with um, all of our closets, I recalled that, you know, one of the most beautiful things about fiction is its ability to transport you places far from your daily life. And so every day I would um, wake up and I would open my closet door and I would step into Italy or into Los Angeles. And that feeling of almost using the blank page as an escape hatch really was what drew me into this project. And, and I kind of created the world that I was unable to go to during the, the lockdown. I mentioned that this book has been described as a period comedy and I laughed and smiled a lot as I read it. But that humor was, you know, it was almost like a veneer for so many serious issues. And as I read about some of the issues you explore in the book, I couldn't help but think about how some of those same issues, you know, are affecting our society today. And 
I'm thinking about, you know, the roles that women are allowed to fill in the workplace or, you know, racial representation in acting roles or, you know, propaganda and nationalism. And one of your quotes, what gave conspiracy the credibility reasonable explanation lacked? It was a question you presented in the book. It seemed especially timely. So talk to me about you know, how you approached the issues, these issues set against the backdrop of, you know, World War II, but also how, how they've aged. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, I think. Um, I think that, that every historical novel describes the period in which it's written as much as the period in which it's set. That one of the great values of the historical novel as a form is it allows us to engage with some of the issues you know, that are front page news today, but to sort of recontextualize them in a different era, in a different set of circumstances, and see both how other people have dealt with them over, you know, the course of time, and see how our own present moment is connected to the longer arc of human affairs. And one of the things that I was really interested in in this book was, was looking how some of the ideas that you know, we're, we're talking about every day on the news today, as you just mentioned, whether it's, you know, government censorship or conspiracy theories and propaganda um, proliferating online, how many of these issues were omnipresent in the culture in the 1940s. And, you know, I suppose it's never, it's never, uh, uh, it's never a good sign when a, uh, a novel set in the 1940s is topical. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> but it seemed like a way to try to give greater context and scope to some of these things that feel like they're coming out of nowhere today. You know, there was a scene in the book when Maria, she's a young woman who immigrated to Los Angeles from Italy and she worked at Mercury Pictures. She loaded Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl on the projector. And as it was playing, she started a polka on the turntable and then she started the movie again, but at twice the speed, changing the marching soldiers into a dancing troupe. And by doing this, she, quote, subverted what Riefenstahl needed 30 cameras and a cast of thousands to achieve. Riefenstahl couldn't be outdone, Maria decided, only undone. So, you know, this whole scene just kind of fascinated me. Can you talk to me about these propaganda films created abroad, but also created by the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So for most of the 30s, due to various production and, and censorship codes, films weren't really allowed to express any political opinions. So when America entered the war, there was no kind of propaganda apparatus at all in place. The United States Army put the director of Frank Capra in charge of, of sort of creating propaganda films to educate new soldiers and the American public at large. And early on in his tenure, he saw Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl, and he left the theater feeling sick, in part because he said that the film made him think that America would lose the war. And he didn't know how Hollywood, this industry that had been prohibited from any kind of political agitation for its entire you know, recent history, would compete with German and Italian and Japanese propaganda industries that had been created expressly for the purpose of influencing the minds of their citizens and from abroad. And Frank Capra's great stroke of genius was he realized that he didn't need to try to outdo the Lenny Riefenstahls of the world. All he needed to do was subvert them. And so he um, began 
incorporating in American propaganda movies all kinds of scenes from German propaganda. And what he would do was he would just simply add a voiceover or, or recontextualize uh, a particular scene. And the example that appears in the book is something that actually occurred was in a propaganda reel. It, it wasn't Frank Capra, it was, it was a different director. They simply sped up this scene of these marching you know, stormtroopers and put some polka music on. And all of a sudden, this scene that was supposed to instill fear and terror becomes ridiculous. And, and, and you sort of see these stormtroopers as literally marching puppets. And it kind of revealed just how hollow and empty and soulless the propaganda of Axis-aligned countries really was. And I was fascinated with that idea of how, you know, it was sort of a great case of American ingenuity, I think, of taking, you know, these films that had casts of, of hundreds of thousands and cost, you know, millions of dollars. And simply by changing the playing speed and adding a different soundtrack, you can just suck all of the power from it. So part of the novel is set in Calabria, which was a prison of sorts with no fences in Italy. And this location was mirrored in a way by the do not travel more than five miles past your residence ban for enemy aliens in the United States. Can you talk to me about like the juxtaposition of these two prisons of sorts in two locations? Yeah, Maria's father was sentenced to internal exile in a small town in Calabria in southern Italy, which was a form of sort of bizarre punishment that the fascist regime in Italy in the 30s inflicted upon dissidents. They would be separated from their families and sent down to one of these towns in the south, and they were prohibited from walking more than you know a few miles from where they lived. And it was sort of this, this prison without walls where the landscape itself served as the barbed wire fences. So after Maria's father is, is sentenced to this, Maria and her mother emigrate to Los Angeles. And she goes on to, to grow up, to become a producer at uh, Mercury Pictures. And then the war occurs. And one of the um, sort of maybe slightly less known stories of America in World War II is the treatment of enemy aliens during this time period. And so the enemy aliens were people who were citizens of countries that we were at war with at the time. And one of the great sort of ironies and tragedies in their fate was that many of these enemy aliens were refugees who were fleeing persecution in Germany and Italy and, and came to America as emigres who were hoping to find a home, hoping to find freedom and a sense of security here. But then when we entered the war, of course, all of a sudden they were classified as enemies again. So they were, they were sort of the cast out from both the countries that they fled and, and the country that they arrived to. And one of the policies in, in California towards enemy aliens was a practice of, of sort of limited mobility. They, they weren't allowed to travel more than five miles from their place of residence. Um, they had to give up flashlights, cameras, um, radios. They had to keep a um, enemy rail, uh, a registration card on them at all times. They were subjected to dusk to dawn curfews. And I was really interested in this idea of, of Maria's experience in Los Angeles, a place that couldn't be more geographically or existentially remote from her father's life in Calabria, in a way kind of mirroring it. And, and this sense that she has that even though she hasn't seen her father in years and, and is, you know, mourns him and misses him and, and is desperate to know what, what's happened to him, her life in Los Angeles in some way mirrors 
his own and that they sort of in this strange way um, become neighbors, even though they live on opposite ends of the earth. Um, they have this, this sort of shared experience that brings them closer together, even though they've never been farther apart. You know, as I was thinking about these um, these enemy aliens and how they were treated, I was, you know, and also about like how Japanese Americans were, were rounded up and placed in internment camps. But I was also thinking about Eddie Liu and Lewis Harrington, two men born in America and how they were treated by their own countrymen. Can you talk to me about these men and, and how they were treated? Yeah, so Eddie Liu is one of the, the main characters. He's Maria's boyfriend, among other things. He is a, this, he's one of the few characters in the book who is genuinely talented. He is this Shakespearean-trained Chinese-American actor. He can, you know, recite from memory every soliloquy that has, you know, ever appeared in, in Shakespeare or Chekhov or, or what have you. But because of the the racist typecasting that was so prevalent in Hollywood at the time and, and in some ways continues into the present, he's unable to play any roles worthy of his talents or his his dignity. And Eddie is one of the only characters in the novel who's actually born in America, who isn't an immigrant. And yet because of this sort of typecasting, he is as much of an outsider, um, if not more, than the various exiles who come to work at Mercury Pictures. I've always struggled a bit with love stories. Love stories have always been just a, a little tricky for me, particularly making them feel real and genuine. And one of the things I, I really loved about writing this novel is the relationship between Maria and Eddie, that um, they are both these very different kinds of outsiders who, um, you know, Maria as, as, um, as an emigre and as a woman trying to make it in the front office of, uh, of a Hollywood studio and Eddie as an Asian American actor. They come from such different backgrounds, but I think they they recognize something in each other's outsiderness that really brings them together. After Pearl Harbor, Eddie finally gets a lucrative film contract, but it is to play these sort of grotesque caricatures of Japanese villains. And so he's he's at this point where his conscience very much comes in conflict with his livelihood. And this is something that Maria is also experiencing in her own way. Um, and, and I love the idea of two characters who recognize each other's moral failings and the intimacy that that creates, the, the sense of almost a kind of forgiveness they have for one another, simply because they can admit and, and recognize each other's fallibility. So this book uses a wide lens to look at a, a time period, and we got to see the story from multiple perspectives. I mean, even Verdette. So talk to me about what it takes to embody these characters, to nail down like their the dialogue and, and the inner dialogue from each of the characters. I think that the most valuable quality that any writer can have is curiosity, simply just being interested in, in other people. And I feel like as a writer, my books are often my way of simply trying to get to know other individuals. In pretty much all of my work, I've tried to write books that don't have minor characters. I love the idea of every character getting their, their sentence or two in the spotlight, no matter how peripheral to the main drama they are. And that is an idea that feels particularly interesting when it's set 
in the world of Hollywood where you quite literally have bit players. So there are a couple extras in this novel named Harold and Gerald. They hold the world record for the most number of on-screen deaths in film history, and they dream of one day living to see the end credits. Little moments like that where the book sort of peels off and looks at some of these minor characters are really some of my favorite moments. I think that as a novelist, I'm always trying to recreate the kinds of reading experiences I most treasure. And the sort of, of novels that I'm always drawn to with the greatest enthusiasm are those that sort of create these large tapestries where you feel all of these different lives being woven in and out of each other and the book becoming almost uh, a miniature in which all of these you know, smaller figures are moving around and, and you're on the outside peering in. There were a couple of themes that ran through the book that I want to explore. You know, the first is Frankenstein. Can you talk to me about that movie and the, and the role that it plays in the novel? Yeah. So when Maria is a child, her father takes her to see an Italian uh, production of Frankenstein that was uh, set in the 1920s. And I love this idea of the story of Frankenstein taking these different shapes throughout the novel. I think that Frankenstein, one of the um, many ways that we can look at the Frankenstein story is of an exile, of somebody who's been cast out, who's trying to find their way um, into a world that isn't interested in welcoming them in. There's this beautiful scene in the second Frankenstein movie and in um, the original Mary Shelley novel where Frankenstein is peering in the window of the lighted window of this hut and he sees the family inside and he wants to understand how they are living there, what their customs and conventions are. And he is hoping that if he can learn those, he will be invited in and, you know, be a part of their family. And this image sort of repeats itself throughout the novel when Maria goes to the movies, that that, that a movie becomes that that uh, lighted window that she is peering into, where she is in the darkened theater, looking at Americans on the screen and trying to understand how they are living, what their values and, and their traditions are, and what she can do to be invited into that world. So that repeats throughout the book and, and I think becomes a, a way not only of thinking of exile, but also of what it means to, to find a home. The next is the brown leather suitcase. So the brown leather suitcase, one of the ideas that I was really interested in in the novel is this idea of, of what can you take with you when you are leaving your home? And so Maria's mother has spent much of her adult life saving up for a beautiful cemetery plot that she wants this plot for herself and her family. And when Maria and her mother, uh, Annunciata, emigrate to the U.S., Annunciata, Maria's mother, decides she's going to take a suitcase filled with the dirt of her cemetery plot, that this is going to be the thing that she brings with her, quite literally Italian soil. And one of the things that I found myself drawn to over the course of the novel is just this image of this suitcase and how it sort of changes as the lives of Maria and her family change over the course of the, the subsequent, um, you know, 300 odd pages that eventually that suitcase full of dirt becomes the topsoil for a garden that Maria's mother is growing. There's this beautiful moment at the end of the book when Maria realizes that because Eddie has spent his entire life in Los Angeles, he's never had to purchase luggage before. And for Maria, who has quite literally spent 
portions of her life living out of the suitcase. This is almost the um, the, the purest articulation of, of just how different their backgrounds are. And Maria ends up giving Eddie this, this brown leather suitcase that has played such a pivotal role in her family over the course of the preceding 20 years. And it's, it's this moment in the book where I feel like this love story moves past romance and infatuation and arrives at this kind of kernel of, of absolute compassion. And it's, it's, one of, it's one of my favorite moments in the novel. You know, this, as, as we talked about earlier, you know, it's a comedy, there are dark themes, but I have to tell you, you know, some of the places where I think where I kind of laughed the loudest had to do with the three great aunts. Can you talk to me about the inspiration for these ladies? Do they come from your own family history? They, they actually absolutely do. Um, so Maria <laughs> has these three great aunts named Mimi, Lala, and Pep, and, and I also have uh, three great aunts named Mimi, Lala, and Pep. And they were these tiny little Italian-American ladies. They had very um, fatalistic worldviews, shall we say. Um, there's a moment when one of the aunts looks at 11-year-old Maria and says, you poor, poor girl, you have your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> and, um, and maybe I'll tell you about uh, one of my great aunts who appears, she is Mimi in the novel. She was Mimi in real life. And she lived to the age of 98. And she hated every single second. <laughs> um, she was very, a, a, a very bleak personality. But she, she always really was very sweet to me. And when my first novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, came out, she drove around central New Jersey on an expired driver's license. And she went to every bookstore she could find. And she would take copies of my book from the back of the store and would bring them to the front, uh, <laughs> would begin to put them over copies of James Patterson and, and Daniel Silva and, and all of that. And she would proceed to, to stand there and shake her finger at every customer who came in or out of the store, hectoring them into <laughs> buying her grandnephew's book. And one of the things that, you know, that I, I so love about writing a work of historical fiction is that it, it gives you the opportunity to to bring the past to life, whether it's it's an entire era or or just one beloved great aunt, um, and and so that was one of the joys of working on this novel. I think the, what had me laughing the loudest was the scene um, from her wedding oh, when yeah. the priest had turned green. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm Catholic, so you know a lot of the Catholic you know references in the book just kind of made me laugh. But you know, over over the last few years, Mimi had stopped airing her own sins at Saturday Confession. The thrill was gone. So for sport, she confessed fictitious affairs with prominent parishioners rendered in gruesomely vivid detail. And then the priest recognized her voice. <laughs> oh, anyway, I have to tell you, I feel like this is a confession of sorts. Like I've never seen Casablanca. I, mm -hmm. I have seen Sergeant York, which you mentioned, but you know, you mentioned that part of the research was being able to, you know, to watch some of these these films. Do you think you'll continue that app now that the book is done? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that um, I've, I've always been a film buff, but I had never sort of dived as as deeply into the world of, you know, 1940s filmmaking as I did, um, as I did over the last couple of, of years. And one of the things that so impresses me with those movies is because of many of the censorship codes that 
existed at the time, filmmakers had to be very clever about how to sneak meaning past censors. And, and in some of the best movies by you know, Billy Wilder or Ernst Lubitsch, there's this wonderful game that's being played between the filmmaker and the audience where the filmmaker knows what you're probably thinking. And it almost becomes the sense of the movie is watching you as much as you are watching the movie. And I think that the degree of intelligence and sophistication that requires and, and sort of the trust that the audience knows what you, the filmmaker, is trying to do is endlessly entertaining. And, and also just um, for a writer, it's, it's, it's just a great lesson in, in how to craft material that really respects the emotions and the intelligence of your audience. Well, the book is Mercury Pictures Presents. Anthony Mara, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. That was Anthony Mara, author of the book, Mercury Pictures Presents, which was published by Hogarth. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.